From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, Tammy Katzoff spoke with Ben Wald, class of 2014, head of bar programming for Yuko, a new restaurant in Manhattan. As we do with most of these interviews, we began the conversation by asking how and when Ben became interested in his occupation. So I became interested in the food and beverage industry in high school. I baked a lot growing up. It was just kind of a thing that I fell in love with doing. And I told my parents as a junior in high school, hey, I think I really want to go to culinary school. I want to be a baker. I think this is something I could be really good at. It's a passion of mine. And my parents, who both have traditional degrees, my mom is a recently retired doctor. My father worked for the New York Times for 38 years, looked at me and said, get a degree in something useful. So I went and I was also a theater kid. So I got a degree in theater and still ended up in this industry. After graduating from Muhlenberg in 2014, I got a job at NBC and just really didn't like it. Thought television was going to be my thing. And I just didn't like the people I was working with, the content I was producing. And in the late 2015, early 2016, a friend of mine from Muhlenberg actually started apprenticing at a high-end cocktail bar down the street from where I live now. And I would go see her on the day she'd be behind the bar, which was on Sundays. And I would go in every Sunday and I'd watch her learn and drink her mistakes. And <laughs> then I realized, hey, you know what? This is something, this is something I think that I want to do. And I quit my job in TV and went to every single cocktail bar I'd ever been to, resume in hand saying, you know, just give me two weeks. I can prove that like, I wanna do this having no experience in hospitality before. And a bar on the Upper East Side of Manhattan uh, that has since closed called Seamstress gave me an opportunity to be a bar back. And that was my first job in this industry. And that was October of 2016. So can we, let's rewind to your TV career uh, because I, I come from a, a longer TV career. Um, I worked in New York and TV and in LA and TV for like 20, 20 ish years. So what were you doing and um, what didn't you like about it? Just curious. Uh, so yeah, my, uh, the, the job that I actually got paid to do, I was a production assistant on the Meredith Vieira show, daytime talk show, nationally syndicated. I, I made it to the big leagues. I was working at 30 rock could I had a live feed to where SNL was filmed, where the tonight show late night, all of that. And I realized that uh, it was very different from when I was in college, I was an intern for Conan O'Brien on the Conan show in LA for two summers. And out there he had built this great team that had been with him. Some people had been with him since day one of late night uh, in the early nineties. And everyone there had a voice somehow you could even interns. There was someone the intern could go talk to being like, Hey, I think that like this could be better if we did that. And then that person would kind of be a gatekeeper to the writers, but everyone there, there was this great sense of teamwork. It was let's put on the best show that we can. And it was very different working in daytime television where you're going up against local news, national news. You're going up against Ellen, um, Steve Harvey, uh, Wendy Williams, everyone. And a lot of it was, well, how can we pull people away from 
other shows as opposed to how can we do the best thing that we're setting out to do, uh, which, which was something that I was like, oh, this is, this is different and a little more cutthroat. And the hours were just, I was, I was working harder hours in television than I ever have in my bartending career, which is saying something. Well, I certainly empathize with you because I, I definitely know that feeling. Um, okay. Well, so let's, let's go back to what you're doing now. Um, do you have a typical working day? And if you do, what does that entail? And if you don't, what are your days like? So now that I'm a department head and kind of on the, I'm on the leadership team of this restaurant, I do have a typical day. It's very nice. Most days are typical once you're out of the opening phase of a bar or restaurant or hotel or hospitality thing. Uh, you kind of go in, you look at what happened last night, if there are anything that ran out, if there's things that you're running low on, special service notes, you look at what is upcoming for that day. Are there any parties, VIPs coming in? Are you super light on your reservations? Are you overbooked on your reservations? You check in with everyone. The first thing that you should always do is say hi to everyone who's in the building. So they know that you're there and you, it becomes less transactional, builds that team and start your prep work, whether that's juicing, making syrups, making garnishes, getting ice, starting an infusion, batching out cocktails, whatever needs to be batched so things can go faster. And then at least in my life, every day at four o'clock, we break for family meal. I'm very lucky. This is not the industry norm in many places. It is in New York, where at four o'clock, we all sit down and eat. We are provided a meal. I'm very lucky that I work at a very nice restaurant. So sometimes our meals are 18 hour smoked pork belly. And sometimes it's taco night and sometimes it's spaghetti and meatballs. But we all sit down and we're not allowed to talk about work sit down, eat a meal, and then we all clean up the meal. We thank the chefs for making it. And then it's the last 15 or 20 minutes before our pre-shift meeting, where as a team, we get together, talk about what the day is going to look like. And then we open, and then it's just greeting people who come in, making drinks, getting in food orders, kind of the normal stuff everybody sees at a bar. And then you close, and then you go home. My day is slightly different on the leadership team because every morning when I wake up, I look at the previous night's sales report. I look at what was sold, when it was sold, was there anything that was sent back, especially on the beverage side? Did we sell three cases of beer somehow? And now I'm out of beer and have to call my distributor and beg them to deliver me something in three hours. What do I have on my personal schedule? Do I have a meeting with a distributor? Do I have a meeting with a supplier? Do I have a leadership meeting going on that I forgot about any of that kind of stuff? So you mentioned that there's also an educational aspect to what you do. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So as the head of bar programming, which is the title that I have, but it's semi-interchangeable with head bartender, beverage director, program manager, but the way that my restaurant is structured, that's kind of the niche that I fit into. I'm responsible for making sure that everyone in the building on the front of house team. So servers, back servers, bussers, food runners, our captains, which run the floor, bartenders, sommeliers, all of them know everything that they need to about the bar program in order to do their job. Whether that is 
the history of the cocktail and why it's on the menu, how you would pair that with a dish, why there's egg white in some drinks and not in others, things about how to properly take a martini order or how to properly execute a bartender's choice cocktail. And then the things on our back bar, I happen to have 98 different agave based spirits on my back bar. It's one of the larger selections in New York. I'm the only bar or restaurant in New York that carries some of them and being able to make sure that I know that my team and the team, even the chefs, cause we have an open kitchen. So you can go talk to the chefs that even the chefs know what they need to of, Oh my God, you're getting this thing. You should try this spirit that we have. We're the only people that have it. Not everybody needs to know everything, but everybody should know one fun fact about everything on the back bar. And that's where the education component comes in. It's writing PowerPoint slides that aren't boring. It's telling people the difference between agave harvested in the highlands and the lowlands of Mexico. What is the difference on the production style between mezcal from Oaxaca and mezcal that's not from there? And then regional varieties based on this specific agave plant that's grown in the north as opposed to the south as opposed to what it's like when it's farmed or found wild. So I make sure that if that information is required, people have that at their fingertips, but not necessarily being able to have instant recall over all of that. That's a lot. Yes. <laughs> a lot of responsibility. Do you have any favorite cocktails right now that, for, for making and serving? So I was in a unique situation when I took this job. I had moved to D.C. for 2020 to open a bar called Silver Lion which was open for five weeks and then COVID hit and that was put on hiatus. It's a bar in an old bank vault. So there was airflow because there had been a gut renovation. It was in a hotel, but we decided it would probably be best to kind of wait until there was a lot more vaccinations going on. And uh, we were open for five weeks and then we won best new cocktail bar in America while we were closed, which was really nice, but also a little sad uh, luckily, uh, they have since reopened two weeks ago. So I had been out of work for almost 14 months before taking this job. And my job was initially that like the first thing that I had to do was build a cocktail program. And I had never had to do that completely by myself. I would bring things up to the chef while he was doing R&D on the food and ask, hey, do you like this? I've been sitting with this for too long. so." Luckily, he liked everything that I put out. So I have this 12 cocktail menu that I have complete ownership over. And it was very stressful and time consuming. But I really like pointing people to cocktails on the menu because they're all mine. I came up with all of them. And it's, it's, really, it's really interesting and a really proud moment when somebody goes, this is the best cocktail I've ever had. And you get to do a little a little dance behind the bar because you go, well, that took me three full days and a lot of crying to make, but now I've executed what I've needed to execute because you say it's the best thing you've ever had. So you already started talking about this, but here comes the tough question. Um, let's talk about COVID and yeah. how it has, you know, more about how it has affected your job personally, but also just the hospitality industry in general. I'm going to start with my job personally, because I know I'm just going to go off on how it's affected the hospitality industry in general from a like ground level, non-article standpoint. I 
picked up my entire life to move to DC to open this bar, knowing I'd only be there for a year. That was kind of the deal. I was always going to come back to New York. And then I was, I was in New York when my bar shut down. I was in New York for the weekend visiting my girlfriend and I still have never worked my last shift at that bar. And it was like kind of devastating uh, to see that happen. But then we all thought it'll be three weeks, maybe four, and we'll come back. And then obviously four weeks turned into much longer. And I have a lot of friends who started in this industry who have since left. I decided to double down. I took a restaurant revenue management certification course from Cornell Online. I was reading books about the history of spirits, the history of cocktails. I started just consuming all knowledge that I could because I wanted to be able to set myself up to come back, not just from where I left off, but better. And that kind of thirst for knowledge has carried over into this kind of post lockdown phase, but it was really difficult seeing my friends struggle. Some of them were struggling because the places that they were working were never going to open again. Some of them because maybe the places they were working didn't report all their earnings on their taxes. So they were ineligible for unemployment benefits, people having issues, just getting unemployment, friends who were struggling just with depression. You spend so much time connecting with people behind a bar and bartenders are made to be this intersection of kind of everyone and everything and provide a good time for all. And then all of a sudden we're kind of just left alone to our own devices. And I did struggle with some of that. And I was very lucky to have a support system to help pull me out of that. But I have friends who were not quite as lucky and then friends who had COVID and are still struggling with a loss of their sense of smell and taste. And that is in my industry, that is everything yeah. uh, is being able is being able to do that and kind of working through that. I am fortunate that I was able to come out the other side relatively unscathed. I have friends who were not as lucky. And this kind of leads into what's going on in my industry right now. Hospitality, food and beverage industry, hotels, all of it won't recover for three to five years. And that's a conservative estimate. Everybody knows right now that there's a staffing crisis going on right now, or what is being called a staffing crisis. It's less of a staffing crisis and more of a lot of places. And some of this is the fault of owners and some of this is not. People just don't feel comfortable going back to work. There was an amount of I'll say there, there was an amount of kind of like emotional abuse that you put up with being behind a bar and being in this industry that you would put up with because people would say, oh, the money's great, or I love doing this. And we would convince ourselves that that was okay. But then part of taking this step back and all of these shutdowns, well, then we realized that that's not okay. And you have a lot of owner operators in all over the United States who say, well, no, we can just go back to normal no one has to wear a mask. We're not going to distance our tables. We're still going to work your ragged. We're going to withhold money. We're not supposed to withhold all this. And we've been able to take this, this step back and say, no, that's, that's not okay. And it's shown this huge wage disparity in hospitality. Uh, we are fortunate in New York, fortunate in quotes relatively, that our uh, t- the tipped minimum wage 
is $10 an hour. Minimum wage in New York is $15 an hour. If you work at a grocery store anywhere where you do not receive tips, you make $15 an hour. If you work in hospitality and you're a tipped employee, your employer can pay you $10 an hour. And then as long as your tips make up at least that extra $5, they're not on the hook for that. In some parts of the United States, the tipped minimum wage is $2.75. That's unlivable. Anyway, I don't, I don't care where you live. I don't know anyone that can live on that money. And there's this big push to now make the tipped minimum wage $15 an hour. There's the fight for 15 movement. And that's going through our industry right now. And people are realizing you need me to work. Great. Pay me $10 an hour. Pay me $15 an hour. Our owner, who has never worked in the hospitality industry before in his life, when I interviewed for the job, I said, what's the pay structure like for the non-leadership team? And he said, we're not taking a tip credit from anyone. So we pay flat $15 an hour, which is not an industry standard. And it's terrible to say that for the level of work that we're doing, that that's high. Mm. Uh, That's just on the financial side. On the non-financial side, right now in New York, it has been announced that starting in September, in order to dine inside, you must be vaccinated and you must wear a mask. There is some guidance on it, but that's very difficult because people who have been drinking or people with a sense of entitlement don't necessarily want to show you their vaccination record or be vaccinated or claim that it is a fascist dictatorial law, like pick whatever excuse you want this week. That's what's going on right now. And I am lucky to work in a high-end place where we have the structures in place. When we were in our opening phase, it was still required mask and vaccination. We still asked for it. And then about two weeks into opening, we rolled that back because the government rolled that back. So Mm -hmm. we have the ability to put this into place. I know places that don't. I know places that hire extra security, bonded security guards who have had to throw people out, who have had to call the cops on guests who've gotten behind the bar and started licking things. There is... It is, yeah, people who will cough in servers' faces, people who are beyond what is what we all accept to be the general unruly nature of bars and restaurants. It is now come to the forefront and the general public is now seeing that we in hospitality generally are treated like we are not people, like we do not exist, that we are there to serve you. When in reality, you are guests at a legal, I'm not a lawyer, but from a legal level, you are, you are a guest in our private establishment, you will follow our rules. And if you right. don't do that, we have the right to ask you to leave. And if we ask you to leave, the smart places will go, if you leave right now, you're allowed to come back. And some people go, then I don't ever want to come back and decide to raise hell. And <clears throat> we never stood for it before, but now we have a lot more people on our side who go, wow, like we can't live without bars and restaurants. This is unacceptable. So let's, widen this out to talk more about New York City. Obviously has been a hub of culture and arts and hospitality. So you think that the hospitality industry won't get really back on track or back to normal for several years. How is this affecting the city or how will this continue to affect the city, do you think? It's very interesting because there's there's two parts of it. You will walk down the street in the East Village, Greenwich Village. My restaurant's three blocks from Greenwich Village. On a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it's packed. There's lines to get in everywhere. There's 
people bar hopping from place to place to place, people staying out till 4 a.m. and then drinking in the park. It feels like normal. It, it feels like 2019. But then you look around at all of the shuttered storefronts, all of the restaurants that were and bars that were going to open and then didn't or did open and couldn't survive because they had just opened. You look at the prices of rent now normalizing. You look at just all of these things, these institutions that you think would stay around forever. My girlfriend works on Broadway and she is in every single meeting talking about reopening Broadway, talking about the new vaccine and mask mandates. Broadway and the hospitality industry are hand in hand more than just actors sometimes are also servers. It is when you have pre-theater dinner, that is a huge rush. That is a huge bump without Broadway. No one's going to eat at 5.30 or 6 o'clock. And then no one's going to go out for after Broadway. You're, you're just going out. And as you said, New York is this hub of arts and culture and food and everything. And we're in this kind of blissful, happy phase right now of everything reopening. And I genuinely hope that I'm wrong. I would love it if all of a sudden in a month they turn around and say, oh, everyone's vaccinated. Delta variant's gone. You're all good. Party on. But we all know that that's not the way that it's going to work. And things are going to, business is going to dip again. I hope it doesn't dip a lot as somebody that works in this industry and pays his bills off of this industry. But it very much has the chance to dip again and come back. And in the winter, when outdoor dining is harder to do and people aren't staying outside and having picnics in the park as much, it really concerns me. I don't think we're going to go back into a full-blown lockdown, but I do think that we may see capacity restrictions again. We may see places not operate seven days a week anymore. We don't. We opened up only operating Tuesday through Saturday because we knew in fine dining, not a lot of people are going to eat and drink at that level at that price point on Sundays and Mondays. But I don't see us going down from more than five days a week, but there are places that are going to do it. And I think just even financially for people and financially for this industry to recover, it's going to take a very long time. I think the industry itself, places will reopen and bounce back faster, but the money that goes into these places, your, your kind of return on investment, you're just pushing it back farther and farther and farther. What are the most challenging and also the most rewarding aspects of your job? And those can be the same or different. I'm glad you said they can be the same because they are the same people. I love people. I also hate people. Um, <laughs> I can't open a bar and not let people go there. And then I open a bar and really want people to be there. People are unpredictable, which is part of the fun, but also part of the stress. You never know if the group of six people who just walked in is going to sit down and just keep ordering rounds of shots. And then all of a sudden, oh, I need to somehow get them to leave. Or if they're going to sit down, order a $7,000 bottle of wine. This is obviously very specific, a $7,000 <laughs> bottle of wine to where I work order a $7,000 bottle of wine, sit, eat, talk, have a wonderful time, and then leave at an hour where then I can fit somebody else onto the table before you close. I 
love saying there's no big thing that happens in a restaurant. There are no big problems. A pipe bursting is a big problem, but there are no big problems that you can, that, that you can see coming down the line. It's all small things. There, it's small problems that build up to be big problems. And a lot of that is customer service. It's guest services. If my spirits delivery doesn't show up, that's not the biggest problem in the world I can make do because I can figure out, oh, well, I can sub this out for this. We'll do a menu change. We'll let people know. If the group of six people walks in and you can tell maybe they have already had too much to drink, the easy way to stop that small problem from becoming a bigger problem is saying, hey, you know what? We, you can lie, which helps everyone because it preserves them. It preserves their egos so they don't think that they're in a bad position. Hey, we're actually fully booked. We're about to open for a private party. Our water just went out, so we're closed for the evening. Anything like that, it's all about, even in those situations, preserving the guest's sense of self so mm -hmm. they don't think they were the problem. It's just owning it, putting it on yourself and having a fine time. Or being like, are you here for dinner? Just drinks. And if they say, we really just want some food, great. They just want food. Let's, let's load them up. We have lots of wonderful food that can help you out with that. Or just having that conversation. Hey, you guys seem like maybe you've had a little bit too much to drink. Why don't you come back and see us another time? That is the small problem that you've then that you, you've then solved. It's right. a big problem if you let them stay and then they continue to drink and then they get rowdy and start breaking things. Um, <laughs> that's a small problem that has then turned into a bigger problem. It didn't right. start as a big problem. The and that's the most difficult part of my job. The most rewarding part of my job. It's the same thing. It's the couple from down the street who's lived in the neighborhood for 20 years who just walks in on a Wednesday because they didn't know where they wanted to go for dinner. They knew that we had just opened. They've been wanting to come in. They sit at the bar and you realized, oh, they've, they go to Mexico every year. They've always wanted to learn more about tequila and you happen to be a tequila bar and have a lot of knowledge and enable to show them around and then help them build out their own back bar by giving them suggestions for something and teaching them that no, not all mezcal is supposed to have a worm in it. None of it is supposed <laughs> to have a worm in it. Teaching, teaching them the difference between something that says gold on it and something that says anyhow. And being able to do, I, I love those situations more than anything else. Is somebody coming in and leaving happier, not just because they had an amazing meal, but because they've now taken and learned something and then can go back out into the world and tell their friends and then bring their friends back. For anyone listening who is interested in eventually doing what you're doing, what advice or guidance would you give them? The single greatest book in bartending that I had ever read, I actually read at Muhlenberg in my Theories and Practices of Magic class, which is taught by Phil Laporta. And it's called The Five Points in Magic by Juan Tamariz. And none of it has to do with bartending and <laughs> none of it has to really do with magic. All of it has to do with performing. It is how you stand behind the bar. What direction are your feet pointing? What are you doing with your hands? Where are your shoulders? Where's your head? And it's all about building a persona behind the bar. I get laughed at by my girlfriend all the time because she'll ask me a question. We'll go out. She'll ask me a question about what's on the menu. And all of a sudden I flick straight into bartender voice, very different voice. 
you hear people who have retail voice, server voice, it exists. And yes, you will just go in and out of it without knowing that you're doing it until someone calls you out on it. And then you get very self-conscious about it. But that book, the kind of main line of that book is just confidence. It's walk into a place knowing that you know nothing. You could have read a book. You could have gone to bartending school. I think bartending school is good for some people in some situations, but it doesn't prepare you for 55 people walking in at the same time, everyone running out of ice. Also, all of your limes are gone and no one knows where they are. What do you do? And being able to adapt. And the word pivot has been used a lot during the pandemic, especially in my industry. But it means something very different to me. I was taught by one of my old bosses, who's a great mentor of mine. When you open a bar or even just during normal service, you could be open for five years. Hey, we're out of this pivot to that. And it's just accepting that that has already happened and you're out of it and there's nothing you can do. This is the solution. We will find a complete solution later. Mm. Uh, And walking in with humility and knowing whether the person who has been behind the bar has only been bartending for two years, but has an eidetic memory, remembers everything that they've ever read and is a master behind that bar or has been behind the bar for 20 years and is a grizzled old veteran whose elbows hurt and never seems to make a drink but it's never busy, but everyone (laughs) has a drink in their hand. Know that there is something that you can learn from everyone. Also respect the dishwasher. If you don't have a good dishwasher, your entire operation falls apart. The dishwasher is the single most important human. The bartender is not important. The server is not important. The chef is not important. The dishwasher and the porter who does the overnight cleaning are the most important people in that building. And I am so fortunate to have the greatest dishwasher and porter team in New York because every day I walk in and the place is sparkling clean and respect everyone, even the guest who comes in never tips well. It's hard, but you treat them with respect and they won't cause any big problems and you never know what's going on in someone else's life. And also don't get discouraged. Yes, a lot of places are hiring right now. So you're in a very good situation where one of the best bars in the world, they continually make top 10 on one of the big 50 best bars in the world list is looking for a new bartender. And they just posted, you need no craft cocktail knowledge. We will train you in the way we want to train you. We will tell you the way we want you to do things. We're looking for personalities. We're looking people with drive, with passion, with a fire in their heart to do something. And even if that is you're a paycheck warrior and you want to come in, clock in, care when you're getting paid and clock out and then not care about the place that you work, that's fine. But if you do decide to do this for a living or just to make a couple extra bucks, go in with passion, drive, respect, and humility and stick up for yourself. If managers are doing things that you don't like, tell them. Don't take it from anybody if you don't want to take it from just I worked at a corporate restaurant where I would get yelled at for requesting off three months in advance. Hey, I need this weekend off. I'm going to a wow. I wouldn't know if I could go until the week before. And I kind of took it because I was like, well, I guess this is my industry. Uh, No, the answer to that is no, it is not. Um, (laughs) Don't demand better, but ask for better and know when it needs to be better. If the manager says, listen, I don't have 
don't have the readout of when it's going to be like in three months. When is the very last date that I can tell you by? Can I give you a month out? Is that enough notice? Work with people, but also be willing to say, can it be a month and a half in advance? Like I just, I just need to know so I can get plane tickets. I'm trying to get concert tickets, whatever it is. What I always say to the team is say things with humility and empathy, hear people with humility and empathy, and then your team will just rise to the top. This episode of 2400 Chew was produced by Tammy Katzoff from the Muhlenberg College Career Center. It was recorded remotely and engineered in the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band. <laughs>